At first glance, an interest in physical geography and cartography may not seem directly connected to the study of birds. But without Paul Lehman's immense contribution to our understanding of the status and distribution of birds across North America, our field guides would be far inferior. Whether you pick up the Petersons, National Geographic Societies, Smithsonian's, or Sibley's Field Guide, Paul's handiwork is found in every distribution map you see. As a young boy, and then as a hotshot young birder finding state records of rare birds in New York in the late 60s, it was Paul's drive to expand his life list that led him eventually to search in every state and province that gave him an extremely unique perspective on where specific bird species could be found. Combine that with his lifelong interest in weather and maps and geography, and being at ground zero of the birding explosion, and you begin to understand just how unique Paul is and how much he has contributed to the birding community. Paul grew up in the suburbs of New York City, where he started birding at the age of nine. He then moved to California, where he lived for 20 years before moving back to the East Coast in 1994 to Cape May, New Jersey, where he resided until returning to Southern California in 2008. Formerly a lecturer in Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of California in Santa Barbara, Paul was also editor of Birding Magazine for nine years from 1989 to 1997. He has led birding tours for decades and continues to lead tours with Wings Birding Tours to this day. He was chief editor of several titles in the ABA Bird Finding Guide series, is an associate editor for North American Birds magazine, and continues to write articles and update books on areas such as Santa Barbara County and the Bering Sea. It is with great pleasure that I welcome a fellow gaucho, Paul Lehman, to the Voices of Birding History. So Paul, when did your interest in birding begin? When I was about nine, my parents, who were not birders, but they did enjoy the outdoors, and they would spend some of their vacations visiting places like national parks rather than mm -hmm. cities, for example, or, or a mix, but uh, they liked the outdoors. And we did have a bird feeder in the backyard. This is, uh, I was growing up in the suburbs of New York City, the north side of the city, all through my first 18 years, and they bought me a Peterson Field Guide probably assuming I'd like, sure. maybe I'd like to identify the birds coming to the feeder in the backyard. And my collecting instinct as a young lad got me very interested at the front of the Peterson Guide back in those days. There was something called My Life List, which was a listing of all the species in the guide, the Eastern Peterson book, uh, with a nice space just to the left of each name where you could put a check mark or an X to mark that you'd seen one. And I decided that, boy, I want to fill in as many of those blank spaces as possible. So that got me interested in, in birdings first locally via bicycle or on little sure. family trips. And then about a couple of years later, when I was 11 or maybe 12, uh, we discovered the local chapter of the National Audubon Society, which is only a couple towns away. And they had a regular field trip schedule. And so I started going on their field trips. And pretty quickly, uh, the field trip leader, the main coordinator of their trips, became a, a fairly young fellow, he was in his 30s at that point, who I liked a lot. And he sure. was uh, very pleasant, funny. Uh, we listened to the same AM, you know, pop rock radio station in the car. And so 
he became my early mentor. And I think uh, having a mentor as you start your birding and continue the first bunch of years is really important. And so that was a good thing. Also, during that period, my folks would go on ever-expanding summer vacations, uh, particularly to the western United States, to national parks and the like. And so I got to do a lot of birding just during family vacations because they would stay at lodges or motels out in the country rather than in a city. And I could just walk out the back door and go birding and find myself life birds in the western U.S. or I bird locally on my bicycle. And that lasted several years like that. And then when I was about 16, I, I, in about a year period, found a couple really rare birds in New York. One was a sage thrasher, a western species that only mm-hmm. was the second record for New York at the time. And that wow. sort of put my name on the map among some of the listers of the time. Who's, oh, who's that kid who found the sage thrasher right. on Long Island? Uh, that was during an Audubon field trip. And then on one of my little bicycle rides around my local town in the winter, uh, when I was barely 17, I found a Field Fair, which is, and at that point, the first record for New York and only the fourth record for North America. And that brought birders in from far and wide. I know people who drove all the way from Chicago to see that bird, including, (laughs) funny enough, my friend and roommate many years later, John Dunn of California, who was living living in Chicago one year, going to a school there in college and then decided to come back to San Diego. So he was one of the people who chased the field fair. But anyway, lots of people chased it, not only New Yorkers, but from other states. And so through that bird, I got more in tune with the New York City region birding scene and Mm -hmm. and vice versa. A number of the really good birders met me or talked to me for the first time. And so I quickly fell in with a group of really the best birders in New York City and the most active ones at that time and sort of left my Audubon (laughs) Society in the dust because during that time, you know, as a kid, you're learning lots new and getting better and better. But the people, you know, maybe in the Audubon group who were more advanced in age were not improving. They were the level they were always at. Mm -hmm. And I wanted more. So I uh, got in with this group and, and a couple of the people there were young and shared lots of interests, such as the music we'd listen to on the radio or something like that and while we chased birds hours away or went on birding trips to Long Island, you know, on weekends or things like that. So it quickly burgeoned into serious birding on weekends when I wasn't in high school uh, in classes. Now put this in time for us. When... Uh, that was, uh, yeah, it, also, it started in, the, in sort of the late 60s, mid-60s, I'd say. Uh, when I was nine, that would, that would have been about 65. Uh, I think the first bird on my life list was either a great blue heron or an American kestrel, and I think that was 1964. And then I really got serious starting in about 67 with the Audubon group. And again, it was because of the field guide and the life list. It wasn't a single bird. You know, lots of people have that spark bird that right. gets them interested in birding. That wasn't the case with me. It wasn't a bird. It was the field guide and wanting to see all the birds in it. And then the high school years were the early mid, early 70s. I graduated high school in 74. And at that point, I then moved. Well, my parents didn't move. They stayed in the same house for another 15 years. But I then went to college in California at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Didn't hurt that the campus there overlooks the Pacific Ocean 
construction. And in fact, from my dorm window on the seventh floor of an eight-story dorm, I could actually, with, uh, with a scope, see parasitic Jaegers flying by. <laughs> so uh, that, that I don't know if that was the reason I went there. I, I actually think I went there for uh, an academic program I was interested in. But I started as a biology major through my interest in birds, but after a year and a half or so, switched to geography. Mm-hmm. Because I'd always been interested in the weather. I always, uh, as a kid, when I got the paper in the morning, the family newspaper, I didn't turn to the sports section like all my friends did first. I turned to the weather page and looked at the weather map. And I loved maps, too, and would stare at maps for long periods of time. And I think maybe that got me interested then in physical geography and meteorology, climatology, geomorphology, things like that. So I switched my major, although obviously my interest in birds, in fact, increased even further when I was in California because there was such an active birding community there. After about six months of not knowing many people and only having a bicycle as a freshman, uh, I then met over those months, a couple of the really active Santa Barbara birders, and then one of them had a car who then we could drive all over the state and chase rare birds or just go see life birds or enjoy doing things like going to Death Valley to, to look for rare bird uh, Eastern vagrants in uh, Memorial Weekend and things like that. So sure. already by late my freshman year, I was doing all that sort of, of birding, and that Fantastic. was 1974-75, which was that explosion in birding and listing and and chasing rare birds in California, and some of the really famous birders of the time, the Guy McCaskies and John Dunn's and Rich Stallcups and, and Don Roberson's and Kimball Garrett's and all those people I met right, and birded right. with on a regular basis. Also, Santa Barbara was just being really discovered then as a really good birding area, and just a couple of years before I got there as a freshman, a, a very young birder, only a year or two older than me, named Richard Webster, had started really putting Santa Barbara on the map with finding rare birds and migrant traps. And so when he left to go to Harvard on the East Coast and I moved into Santa Barbara, me and a fellow named Louis Bevere and also Brad Schramm particularly took his place and ran all around, drove around and started finding lots of cool birds and put Santa Barbara on the map. So many of the migrant traps that we birded in the 70s either don't even exist anymore. They're Mm. totally now covered in, you know, either apartments or business parks, you know, a patch of little trees or a weedy agricultural field that the farmer didn't really care that much about. And so it was full of weeds and full of great birds and migration. Well, now, you know, he sold it. 20 years ago and made a millions of dollars and now it's covered in concrete or at least degraded places that they used to have nice trees. They've over-trimmed them way back. That seems to be a common practice now all over the place is cut them back to almost nothing and, and don't let any weeds grow. And, and so they're just not as good. doesn't mean they're all gone by any means, but boy, it's changed. Not to mention a, a lot of chasing in California for these birds. Uh, yeah, maybe you just get older and you don't enjoy the six-hour drives as much as you might have done when you were 20 or 30. But the traffic now, if you want to get through L.A. or or the Bay Area is so much worse than it was in the 70s. If you just avoided rush hour in the 70s, you were fine. But now it's like, you know, it starts at 5 and goes till 9 p.m., you know, and there's like no break. And so it just makes it less enjoyable. I wonder if there are fewer long-distance chasers. I know some who still chase all over the state, most of them are the ones who are doing it in the 70s. They're still alive and they're still doing it while you don't see as many new ones. I think people do more regional birds 
morning, but they'll chase some ultra-fantastic, you know, if a Ross's gull turns up at Half Moon Bay, then people jump in their car from L.A. and go look for it. But there's less of that, I think, as a percent of the birding community. So when you first came out to California, how would you describe the birding community? I thought they were actually fairly different, but again, uh, different meaning, you know, New York, what I was used to in the East Coast, and then California at the time. California birders during that period of the early, mid, late 70s were really at the forefront of vagrant chasing and furthering our knowledge of a lot of identification issues, uh, learning how to identify some of the really tough groups. I think that distinction no longer is valid, East versus West. That changed. But during the 70s, uh, I think uh, you could legitimately say that the cutting edge was really sort of going on in in California in a lot of ways, not all, but uh, in those at least, as they had even earlier than that in places like England or Sweden, and they started first. (laughs) We came later and the like. Now, people in the East, they were much more in tune with active bird migration and the effect of weather on migration, Mm -hmm. places like the Gulf Coast, the East Coast, the Great Lakes. But I think uh, vagrant chasing and identification, that that was being really pushed forward by a fair number of the Californians at that time. So that was exciting to be part of that. Uh, Even though I was only 18, 19, you know, at that point, it was sort of a heady time in California. Did you have something of a mentor even then, or had you already kind of moved into the status of a hotshot young birder? I think I'd moved into that, you know, level, but not to the point of people even better, especially with Western birds, which I I was still learning, though I think I learned them pretty fast. But certainly at that point, you know, the people who were thought of as the real leaders and most knowledgeable were Guy McCaskey, John Dunn, Rich Stallcup, you know, Kimball Garrett, people like that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think of myself quite in their league, but I was catching up and I think learning a lot. So they were my mentors, even though they didn't live locally. When I would go with them, I'd learn a lot from them on trips out of Santa Barbara. Or, you know, within a year or two, they would come to Santa Barbara because we were starting to find all sorts of rare birds, so they'd want to come visit there. So I did have fairly regular interactions, or I talked to John on the phone fairly regularly. So the mentoring was still important, even in my college years. Sure. And when you graduated from UCSB, what did you do? Uh, I stayed there. I, after my undergraduate degree in geography, I got a master's degree there also in geography. And then I stayed 10 more years teaching. I was hired uh, by the geography and the environmental studies departments to be a lecturer and teach a variety of physical and regional geography and environmental studies courses, some of the real large lectures. And I did that not full-time. It was about a half-time position. Hmm. And so I also picked up other jobs on the side to supplement the part-time teaching and that included teaching a adult education bird watching class mm. or classes and doing consulting work, bird survey work for various government agencies in the Santa Barbara region. And then by the late 80s, I then became the editor of Birding Magazine, the uh, magazine of the American Birding Association. And right after that, around 1990, I started leading bird tours all around North America for Wings, one of the big tour companies in North America. I was able to get those jobs because starting already in the late 1970s, even a little before, I I got a keen interest in birding all over North America 
partly for purely a listing point of view. And it wasn't just life birds, because if all you want is life birds, then you go to Florida and Alaska and California and Texas and you know the, the hot states for life birds. But I was actually interested in something called total tickies, which was working on every one of my state and provincial lists, which is kind of a perverse pastime as you have to do all this traveling. It's taking the Californians who do their county listing big time even to a much grander geographic scale. And so what that requires one to do is travel to every state and to travel to every state multiple times and at multiple different seasons and to go to the corners of many of those states where you find species that are very local in those states and that's the only place right. they occur so I can get them you know, as a state bird. And so, yeah, it started really as a listing interest, but because of that, I really learned a lot about status and distribution of birds throughout all of North America. Sure. And because of that, that got me hired, I'm sure, in part. And also you learn a lot about identification of birds when you, when you see them in numbers throughout all of North America. To be the editor of birding for a bunch of years, 89 to 97, and to lead tours throughout North America for a large tour company. And later on, then also to be the main consultant who does the range maps for a whole bunch of the popular field guides on the market today, National Geographic particularly, but also the Sibley guides, the first few editions, the Peterson guides, and a couple of the other photo guides that are out on the market as well. I've done range maps, I think, for at least six of the major field guides and all, all of them. So that came about through my interest in geography and my interest in maps and my interest in bird distribution in North America. So even if somebody has never met you, they've looked at a map that you created almost assuredly. Right. If they've, <laughs> if they've owned a field guide, <laughs> the answer is yes. Oh, you know, some people these days uh, with the internet, you'd be surprised some new birders don't even seem to know what a field guide is. But yes, mostly the answer is assuredly yes. My other interest, by the way, in addition to bird distribution in North America was migration and vagrancy. So my favorite kind of birding was to go to migrant traps or places that would turn up oddball birds. Sure. So you found me a lot going to desert oases, islands, peninsula tips, a city park, you know, surrounded by con- miles of concrete, places that turn up migrants and oddball lost vagrants. That was sort of my favorite birding no matter where it was. Sure. Uh, an isolated reservoir in the desert. Probably and still so because is. of that, I, I, I also ended up doing a lot of birding in the Aleutians and the Bering Sea Islands, and I continue to do that and writing a lot of papers, a lot of distributional uh, articles, identification articles for various magazines, and, and some book covering those topics. What would you say is one of the biggest changes of birding back in the 70s to birding now? What's changed, obviously is the dissemination of information and the unbelievable quickness and thorough, you know, and, and volume of information, everything from rare bird news to field guides uh, on your smartphone to websites around the world with bird information and photos. So that, that is, you know, that was not available. In the old days, we needed a dime and find a local payphone <laughs> to report right. a rare bird. Right. And once you, and you were out birding and you wondered what somebody else might be seeing while you were birding and you'd get nervous that, you know, what am I missing by me? Now you can you know, obviously do your own birding and wait till your phone rings or get a text message and, and then be in touch. So all of that has had a major, major effect 
fact. That's all good. Now, there's a lot of bad information out there, and, and the problem is a lot of people can't tell the difference. So, unfortunately, misinformation is rampant as well as good information. People who live, you know, in, in a bubble at home and only get their info from the Internet and then go out birding on their own, they're more prone to, to make mistakes. They don't, I don't think, learn a lot of information they should learn. Also, you, I think there are a lot of people, it, it was a case early too, but I think as much or more now, who haven't even birded very much and they're already sort of chasing rare birds. That's what they're doing. Their birding is directed toward looking for a bird that was reported on the internet. Without learning the common birds, they're off reporting rare birds. And and I think without, and I am a, a major, I am like one of the t major complainers, for lack of a better word, of people need to learn status and distribution. It's the big key word. Stat people think they only need to learn what a bird looks like, field marks. But if they don't know the status and distribution of a bird, like that bird does not occur in the winter. It only goes to South America in the winter, and they're going to report one in January because, well, I know that bird. I see them in August, you know, but they're not in North America. You know, that they're as prone to make as many or more mistakes when you don't know status and distribution of birds as it is not knowing all the field marks correctly. And I think that people today, even more than in the past, but it was in the past as well, don't learn those foundations and then th and go beyond that and then misreport. Also, those type people who are reporting data right and left now on eBird, for example, a lot of that data I think is unreliable. And I'm, I'm a critic of a lot of the quality of eBird data and think it's not good enough to use in scientific studies, for example, while others think it's all great, or most of it, I think probably half of it shouldn't be used, for example. So at some point, Paul, you ended up back on the East Coast. Yeah, um, after 20 years in Santa Barbara, uh, and I was married at the time, and we were still renting an apartment. We couldn't afford buying a house in Santa Barbara. Who could? Uh, and it just it's only gotten much worse since then. So in 94, after 20 years there, we decided... Uh, me and my wife at the time, Shawnee Finnegan, decided to move to the East Coast, where my family still lived, and go to Cape May, New Jersey, which is a famous, famous migration hotspot, one of the best-known birding spots in North America. She was an artist. I was leading tours and editing Birding Magazine at the time, so it didn't matter where we lived. And so why not live in a great birding spot? We knew some of the birders who lived there, such as David Sibley at the time, and we thought the idea of, of a change of scene and I'd be closer to my family and just have birding right out your back door literally was a great idea. So we moved there in 94. It is a wonderful place to live and watch the ebb and flow of bird migration. And we lived there, or I lived there at least, 14 years. During that time, we separated. She moved back west. But I stayed and continued to do what those jobs I was doing, although my editing at Birding Magazine ended during that period. And also during that period, I started slowing down on leading tours. I did that mm. for 20 years, seven, eight, nine tours a year. And that gets tiring and a bit old after a while, just doing that much, being on the road and dealing with tour logistics, etc. Sure. So I started dropping tours slowly one by one. And I still lead them today, but only two or three. And mostly it's uh, cruise ships 
ship pelagic trips. So <laughs> I don't have to deal with feeding the people or housing them. That's the cruise ship. You know, I just show them pelagic birds. It's, it's a lot easier. Are there differences in the birding community back east versus the west now? There, the, the emphasis is on migration, uh, active migration, visible migration, as well as chasing rare birds like it is in the West for a lot of birders. But it, it is different, and, and the importance of weather, whether the fronts that come through, cold fronts in the fall or warm fronts in the spring or a hurricane, and those are all so important to determining the number and composition of the birds, much more so than it is, obviously, in California, where things are much more subtle with the weather. When you think about all the years that you've been birding, has the profile of the average birder changed over the years? I don't see a big difference. I think it's still, you know, a lot of people pick it up in sort of mid-age and more elderly when they have free time. A smaller number uh, start when they're young and get really, you know, hooked early and make it their life. Whether there are more young birders now than there were when I was young <laughs> in the you know early 80s, 70s, late 60s, I can't answer that. Now the birding community is much more in touch with each other because of the internet and all, and and so communication is so much easier than back in the old days. That you know a young kid birder in South Dakota can easily communicate with all his like-minded friends throughout the country. You know much easier than that he could have done in the late 60s, early 70s. Back then he'd be so isolated, maybe he'd give up, you know, nobody to do this with and, and to keep the fire going. So in that sense, it's easier now. Although back then it was safer to go birding by yourself as a kid. I remember my parents had no concern at all that I was going out on my little bicycle when I was 13 years old birding in, in my town in the suburbs of New York City. You know, how many parents would let their kids do that now? Not as many. Uh, so, you know, there's good and bad changes over the years. So I think the age composition may be close to the same and, and, and the like. I think the emphasis by the birders themselves may have changed a little because of the internet and things like eBird. And they barely have been birding very long. No mentor. They've, they're just getting everything from the internet and they quickly uh, already are chasing birds without even learning the common birds and a foundation. You know, that sounds negative and in, in a sense it is partly because they're more apt to make mistakes and the like. But hey, you know, if you enjoy doing what you're doing, that's great. Whatever it is about birding, if you enjoy it, whether you're a lister or a total non-lister, a behavior specialist, you only want to go to the tropics, you only want to go to Alaska, you wouldn't dream of going more than 10 miles from home, or you would drive from San Diego to Del Norte County just to get a county bird, you know, it, whatever it is, if, if you're enjoying <laughs> it, that's what matters. Although I'm a strong believer in, in sharing information, educating other people, heaven knows we need more people who care about birds and the environment, so try to do that. Educate your friends, formally or informally. Write articles for local newspapers or your local Audubon newsletter or an actual scientific journal or do a book on the birds of some area you know really well or an article. So try to contribute after you've become better established and been doing it longer, if you can. I think that's important rather than taking some expert birders, take all their, their information to the grave with them. You know, that's too yeah. bad.
So I continue to try to write a lot of stuff and do, I'm doing books. I did a big book on the birds of Santa Barbara County and I keep updating that every year Indeed. online. And I am doing a book on the birds of the Northern Bering Sea, St. Lawrence Island, Gamble area where I go every year once or twice. And I'll probably do similar sorts of books after those two are done or continue to be updated. Just because I feel like if I have the information and nobody else is going to do it, here's an opportunity to contribute something. So as you look back on your life now, what are you most proud of? What has been most fulfilling? From a birding point of view, it's discovering new phenomenon, phenomena. <laughs> uh, and mostly in my case, it's been sort of, again, rare bird occurrence and what places are good for rare birds that people didn't even know or the mm. season people didn't know. So, for example, in western Alaska, everybody used to go to western Alaska in spring. They went to Attu and other islands in spring. But wait a minute, the fall is when a lot even more rare birds turn up because all the young birds of the year are making their first migration and they're the ones most likely to get lost. So, wait a minute, <laughs> we should be doing this in fall. So I started doing it in the fall in the early 90s out there and we were hardly anybody up till that point it had been done a little bit, but not much. And now we've realized, you know, that's when we've discovered a dozen first North American records in this one village, you know, in, in, in the fall since, since the 90s, for example. Or, you know, finding new migrant traps in San Diego. Again, the type that are <laughs> a homeless encampment on a creek sure. or a condo complex. I mean, everybody knew about Point Loma and the Tijuana River Valley. Everybody knows about Outer Point Reyes. But maybe there's some, you know, town, uh, you know, in the Bay Area that's really good for wintering strays that nobody birds, you know, they have really good trees or, you know, whatever, and that's still waiting to be discovered. Or And so that kind of discovery of places, I, mm. I found some really cool spots in Nevada back in the 80s and 90s, migrant traps, southwest Arizona the same more recently. So that's sort of from a, from a hobby point of view. Uh, professional, I guess it's the range map thing because so few people mm -hmm. study distribution. I mean, there's all sorts of people who can tell you how to tell all the Impidinax flycatchers apart, but they don't know. They may know California, but then they don't know the other 49 states. So I guess I've sort of felt that I hopefully moved the accuracy of, of range maps and field yes. guides, moved that ahead quite a bit from what it used to be. Well, thank you, Paul, for everything that you've done to contribute to our birding community. 